Before we start today's episode, a quick reminder to use your dollars as your voice. Donate your money and your time to worthy causes and worthy organizations. We have assembled a list of resources of both nonprofit organizations and GoFundMe campaigns that we support. You can find that at affordanything.com slash PSA Thursday. And if there is a nonprofit or a GoFundMe campaign that you would like to add to that list, please do so in the comments. We welcome and encourage that. I am also matching donations up to $3,000 that are made to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that is protecting journalists who are being targeted and harmed while they're doing their jobs, the Atlanta Community Food Bank, and the Children's Development Academy of Atlanta, which works with economically disadvantaged preschoolers. I will match your donations to those three organizations. For all the details, please listen to our most recent PSA Thursday episode or visit affordanything.com slash PSA Thursday. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking action. And with that said, here's today's episode. You can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else, and that applies not just to your money, but also your time, your focus, your energy, your attention, anything in your life that's a scarce or limited resource. That leads to two questions. Number one, what matters most to you? And number two, how do you align your daily decisions in a way that reflects that? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast. Every other episode, I answer questions that come from you, the community. And today, my buddy Joe Salcihai is with me to answer these questions. What's up, Joe? Believe it or not, Paula, I'm sitting at home. You're kidding. Yeah. And you'll find this weird. I've watched a lot of television lately. A lot. (laughs) And you'll find this even weirder. I need a haircut. That is so unusual. I know. And for people who have seen me before, the fact that I need a haircut is crazy (laughs) because I only have about seven hairs total. So, but yes, they need to be cut bad. I saw this meme online where somebody said, wow, I had no idea so many Americans were living haircut to haircut. Right. <laughs> that has been me. I know it. Yeah, we talk a lot about insurance and protecting your downside and man, protect the haircut. <laughs> you know, having long hair actually it, it gives you this margin of error. Yeah, you, know, you can go for months without a haircut and nobody really notices. Well, people can't see me again, but so I don't grow hair on the front of my head at all. But in the back even though that grows slowly, that's growing more quickly. I am about to have an inadvertent mullet where, <laughs> where it's, it looks like business in the front and party in the back and on the sides if I don't get something done quick. Uh, well, clearly, if you can't live it down, play it up. Clearly, you got to dye that hot pink. I got to. I got to. Maybe I do that instead. That'll mix it up. <laughs> Well, speaking of mixing it up, how's that for a segue? Hey-o. Our first question today comes from Marissa. Hi, Paula. My name is Marissa. I really love your show. Something I've been wondering about, though, is investing in a Roth account. Can you do it if your income is inconsistent and if it perhaps might go over the cap for Roth investing? How do you handle this if you're self-employed? Thank you. Marissa, that is a fantastic question. Now, first of all, before I answer it, I want to give some background for the sake of anyone listening who's wondering, what on earth are we talking about? In order to contribute to a Roth IRA, your income needs to fall under a certain limit. In the year 2020, your modified adjusted gross income, if you are married filing jointly, 
needs to be less than $196,000 to make a full Roth IRA contribution. There's a phase-out window if you make between $196,000 and $206,000. And if you make more than $206,000, then you are ineligible to make a direct Roth IRA contribution. That's if you're married filing jointly. If you're single, uh, you need to make less than $124,000 to make the full contribution. There's a phase-out between one twenty-four dollars and one thirty-nine. dollars and then you're ineligible if you are single and you make more than 139000 Now, the workaround to this is that if you are not eligible to make a Roth IRA contribution, if your income is too high, you can make what's referred to as a backdoor Roth conversion. And so what you do in that case is you make a contribution, a non-deductible contribution to your traditional IRA, and then you convert that money from your traditional IRA to your Roth IRA. The way that I have done this, it's quite straightforward. I will simply put the full contribution into my traditional IRA, wait for 24 hours, and then in my case, I call my brokerage, which is totally unnecessary because you can most brokerages will allow you to do this online. You then just roll that money from the trad IRA to the Roth IRA, and boom, you've made a backdoor Roth IRA contribution. So Marissa, here's what I would recommend. There's no harm in executing a backdoor Roth conversion, even if it's not required. So even if it turns out that you didn't have to make a backdoor Roth contribution, like if it turns out that you could have made a direct Roth contribution, no big deal. If you made a backdoor Roth, there's no harm in doing it. So when in doubt, if you're not quite sure what to do, make a backdoor Roth contribution. It's not going to hurt you either way. So that's my number one tip. Now, number two, and this is an alternate strategy, and this is stated for the sake of anybody who made a Roth, a direct Roth contribution, and then at the end of the year, they get some unexpected money, maybe a, a big commission or a big bonus, and it sent them over the edge. If that is your case, and you have made a direct Roth contribution and it turns out now that you are above the income limit, don't worry, because you can fill out what's called a removal of excess form. And by filling out a removal of excess form and submitting that to your brokerage, you can remove that money from your Roth IRA. And then once that money is removed, you can do a backdoor Roth conversion. You know, something else I was thinking too that Marissa did not bring up, but I know that there are lots of other people, Paula, with inconsistent income. And inconsistent income creates a lot of problems for people when it comes to their overall planning. Like, how do I save it all when I have inconsistent income? I know a lot of people that get big either commissions from the place that they work, or maybe they are on a, a commission salesperson basis, or they're somebody that's self-employed. So they get a big check. They try to make the Roth IRA contribution then. And to her point, what if I don't end up making enough, right? Mm -hmm. So you explain that well. But it also brings up this saving thing and self-employed people would always come to me when I was a financial planner and they'd say, I love this idea of dollar cost averaging. I just don't think I can do it. Like, how do I put money in every paycheck when I don't get a consistent paycheck? And so I came up with a strategy that has always worked really well for me and also worked really well for my clients and friends. And this is, this is it. Figure out an amount that you can pay yourself that is less than what you think you're going to make this year. So the first thing we have to do in our head, and by the way, this is for anybody, we have to first divorce 
the concept of what I make is what I spend, which we should be doing anyway, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't do that. We get a raise at work and then we think big screen TV. We need to separate these two things. Just because I make X doesn't mean I need to spend that. So come up with an amount that you're fairly certain you're going to earn and then have your money go into a separate account that's not the account where you're going to spend money. Have that be an account that's going to fluctuate, go up and down and up and down. But every two weeks or once a month or whatever your budget is, pay yourself out of that account that swings up and down based on your cash flow. Have a set amount, leave that account and go into your spending account so that now you are paying yourself a set salary all the time. And that gets rid of the ramen noodle, ramen noodle, ramen noodle, bam, I got a big paycheck. Let's go celebrate and blow a ton of money. Uh, problem that a lot of people have. And it also allows you to save a portion of that money, every paycheck into whether it's a SEP or a simple or into a brokerage account, whatever it might be, you can save the same amount then. It really, really helps not being on that boom bust cycle by setting up a two account system. All your money goes into account A and then pay yourself a set amount into account B and it makes life for, man, it made my life so much better. Well, and I think at a broader, bigger picture level, part of what I'm hearing you say is separate what your business makes from what you yourself make, like have separate identities for your business and yourself. So by paying yourself a fixed salary, a fixed weekly or biweekly or monthly salary, you are essentially saying I as an individual earn a salary from my business and what the two entities make are not the same. And even if you're a commissioned salesperson working for someone else, I still like that. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. I'm bringing in vers- via commission is not what I'm really earning myself. So treat that commission as if it's a as if you're you are self-employed because frankly even though you're selling somebody else's stuff, you really are self-employed. You're only getting to uh, spend what you make. Mm. So in the case of a commission salesperson, for example, so they would have a, a base salary and then they would have those commission payments. Would you suggest diverting specifically the commission payments to a separate account and then finding the trailing 12-month average and then going a little under that and then paying themselves a portion of it? I would have it all go into that account, have everything still go into that one account. and ah, then, including the base salary. Including the base salary, yeah. Have that all go in and then prorate that commission and base salary X amount. It gets too messy having your money come from two different places. If I, if I get to spend my whole paycheck that's the base salary and mm-hmm. I spend a little bit more based on the commission, forget that whole thing. Just have it go into X account, everything, and then decide how much money I'm going to pay myself every two weeks. And then this is this is cool. A couple times a year, and I've set specific dates at the six-month mark and at the 12-month mark, I now will tell Cheryl, I'll say, guess what? I'm giving myself a bonus this year. <laughs> and so we get a nice X extra. But then at that point, because we have these weekly money meetings, we then decide what do we want to do with that that's more constructive than just blowing it. Because I, I found before that And I really want to emphasize this. And people that are commission, straight commission salespeople know this feeling. Sometimes those commissions are so few and far between that when you get that big check, 
you want to reward yourself by buying something that is stupid <laughs> that you really don't need, but you feel like you deserve because you've waited for so long for this money to come in. So I'm going to completely overspend now and it becomes a train wreck. At least it was for me and was for many of my clients before we created this system. What would you advise to anyone who has a small business but makes so little that that margin between what their business brings in and what they themselves need to pay themselves and to live on, if the difference between the two is super small, could they still set up this system? I mean, wouldn't they have to adjust to their own pay in times when their business isn't doing well? No, you, you have to set this up at a time of plenty when you have extra money sitting there so that you can begin funding yourself through the lean time. So you can't start this during the lean time. You have to wait for that big check and instead of spending it all right now, begin your proration. But if there's a thin margin between what your business brings in and what you spend, you need to start thinking of yourself as a venture capitalist who might put money in your business. Is this a business that's really well run? Is this a business that I would invest in? You know, I start thinking about myself as a potential shareholder. And if you're spending every dime that you make on your business, there clearly is a bigger issue. And we need to talk about somehow separating the two of those numbers. All right. So we have gone far beyond the scope of Marissa's question. <laughs> but I like this discussion because it's fundamentally a discussion, not just about budgeting, but at a bigger level, how to think about the money that you're bringing in, regardless of whether you're self-employed, you're a small business owner, you have a side hustle, you have the type of employment in which you have commissions. I think this conversation applies to a lot of people. But Marissa, to answer your question, when in doubt, just make a backdoor Roth conversion anyway. There's no harm in it. And to anybody else who at the end of the year realizes that, oops, I accidentally made a direct Roth contribution and I wasn't eligible to do so, fill out a removal of excess form and then make a backdoor Roth. So thank you, Marissa, for asking that question. Our next question comes from Caitlin. Hi, Paula. My name is Caitlin. I'm 25 and I've been listening and loving the Afford Anything podcast for a few months now. I currently have a financial advisor, and I know my investments with him are in mutual funds. I have been wanting to open my own Vanguard account and transfer the money into index funds. Would it be wise to fire my financial advisor right now during this pandemic and transfer my money to index funds, or do I need to wait? I know the key is to buy low and sell high. I'm also aware that I could potentially be selling low and buying low right now, and if I wait, I could be selling high and buying high in the future, depending on what the market does. Which would be the better option? Thank you. Caitlin, that is a fantastic question. So what I hear inside of what you've asked are two topics. One is about firing your financial advisor, and the other is about selling out of the investments that you have. I'm assuming that your financial advisor has assets under management. Now, in terms of those assets under management, as you said in your question, as long as you sell out of those investments and then use it immediately to buy like-kind investments, then it's same-same. It's essentially as if nothing has happened. I would not worry about timing, assuming that 
you are selling out of your investments and then immediately buying other like-kind investments and the portfolio as a whole stays similar to where it already is. Yeah, as long as it goes quickly, right, Paula? I mean, just Mm -hmm. don't get halfway done and think, well, maybe there's something big coming up in the market and I got to wait. Don't wait. Yeah, get it done right now and you'll avoid blowing up your plan. Yeah, exactly. As long as the transfer happens immediately, you sell and then you buy, then we're all good. With regard to your financial advisor, I think anyone that advises me, and I've always been very transparent about the fact that I pay for great advice. I want to surround myself with smart people. I want to be the dumbest person in the room. And I found that as I've done that more and more, my career has accelerated more and more quickly. So I'm very happy with that. But if you have no idea what your advisor is doing for you, you need to fire them. You have to fire them because... Uh, Number one, comparing your investments with an advisor to a Vanguard account is not at all an apples to apples comparison. We're talking about an advisor is not a mutual fund. An advisor is not a mutual fund picker. An advisor is somebody that can dovetail all of the pieces of your life together and show you where your blind spots are and help you avoid stepping in problems that might occur. So what's cool about a great advisor is that many times, and studies, frankly, studies by Vanguard have shown this, a great advisor will help you do nothing often with your investments more often because investing is the one place where if you leave it alone and you don't touch it, you're probably doing a better job than if you do touch it. Great advisors make their money most often by being great at telling you to stop overthinking it and stick with the plan. Now, when it comes to everything else, though, for me, that's where advisors being in motion make their money, making sure that I have the right risk management strategy, that my budget is is tight, that I'm saving money into the right types of accounts, that I have a, a tax strategy, that I'm not just saving into a Roth IRA blindly, but I know why I'm saving it there. And also, you know, with the, the Stephen Covey stuff, I like to quote all the time that I'm putting money in, but how do I take it out, right? You pick up one end of the stick, you pick up the other end. How am I going to remove this money? Uh, How do these tax law changes affect me? Where are there opportunities that I don't see any? And then also something I like, I like advisors pushing my game, telling me, you know what? You're not making as much in X areas I could be earning what's my problem there? People that look at at my life overall and point out my weaknesses. That's what a good advisor does for me. And if you don't have that, you need to find it. I think you need those people in your life and it doesn't have to be a CFP. I just like having smart people in my corner. So yes, I would, I would can your advisor because you think it's a mutual fund picker, get rid of them. Mm. Unfortunately, a lot of people in the world of financial planning position themselves as people who primarily will manage your investments for you rather than people who will help you look at the big picture and spot your weaknesses and call out your unknown unknowns. And I think the latter is far more valuable. Yeah, I don't know any value in a mutual fund picker. There's so many cool, easy ways to find that online. And whether you're boring and into this whole efficient market nonsense like Paula is, (laughs) or if you think the markets are a little more inefficient sometimes like I do, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, it it is, it is no longer Paula, 
the world is no longer about getting information. Like back even in the early 90s when I started, the, the world was still in kind of a how can I bring information that I have that you can't get? And there was some information that, you know, Wall Street had at that time that other people couldn't get easily. But now with technology, mm-hmm. information's not the problem. It's how do I wade through all of the junk and find the information that's specific to me? And that's where the individual relationship and dovetailing comes in. Like I need somebody to go, Joe, quit reading that. That has nothing to do with you. Here's what you need to be focused on. Read this thing. This is really more uh, something that affects you and, and where you're trying to go. So anybody that tells you that they have information that you need, I think is you, you're going the wrong way by following them. Right. It's less information and more curation and wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Caitlin, for asking that question. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Real quick. Name some super easy choices that you make. For example, when you book a flight, easy choice, avoid the middle seat, get the window or the aisle, right? Maybe at work or at home, there are certain things that you just always outsource, like tech support or a weekly house cleaning. Easy choices. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the time that you launched to the time that you hit your first million in sales. And so whatever you're selling, whether it's tools for real estate investors or accounting workbooks or scented soap or outdoor outfits, whatever it is, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have both an in-person point of sale system as well as an all-in-one e-commerce platform. And it's the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. They also have Shopify Magic, which is an AI-powered all-star. And you can grow your average order value with the Shopify Bundles app, where you can create and sell product bundles with ease. What I love about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, whether you just started your business today or whether you've been in business for 10 years, Shopify gives you everything you need to control and take your business to the next level. They power 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And they are the force behind millions of entrepreneurs of every size, big and small, across 175 countries. And they've got award-winning help to support you every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paula now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash paula. 
when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet. So I didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations. But now I've got a new card with more miles and I'm getting business class upgrades. I'm getting lounge access. I'm getting all kinds of perks that I didn't even know that I was missing out on. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Our next question comes from Anonymous, and Joe, you and I now name all of our Anonymous callers. This caller is moving from California to Florida, so what should we call her? I think we should call her Flo, because she's moving to Florida. All right, then. Our next question comes from Flo. Hi, Paula. I really love your podcast, and I have a question for you, because I am moving across country from California to Florida, and I'm starting a new job. This new job is super exciting. I will be earning almost twice as much as I was in California and Florida has no taxes. But my question is, I have a simple IRA for my last job. Because I was only at my last job for very little time, there isn't a lot of money in it under $2,000. And I was told I can't keep investing the simple IRA because it's only for small businesses. My new job, while it has a great salary, won't let me start investing in the 401k plan until I'm working for a year at this job. What should I be doing in the year where I can't invest in the 401k and I can't touch my IRA either? Should I open another type of savings account? I also currently have about $30,000 in savings and it is sitting in a savings account in my bank. I use it as an emergency fund. Occasionally I do dip in such as for relocation costs, but I always put it back to 30,000. I am not planning on retiring early because I love to work, but I definitely want to be financially independent. I am 39 and I don't plan on retiring until 70, but you never know where life takes you. So I definitely want as many assets as possible available and plan for retirement post age 65 or 70. I appreciate any advice on what to do. Thank you. Flo, first of all, congratulations on this new job. That's super exciting. You're, as you said, you're doubling your salary and you're going to live in an area where there is a lower cost of living and no state income tax. So your money is going to go a lot further. So huge congratulations to you for that score. I also love the approach that you have. You said that you don't want to retire early, but you do want financial independence. And I, I love that attitude because financial independence is not about early retirement. Early retirement is one of many possibilities that are open to a person who is FI, but financial independence ultimately is about having choices. It's about having flexibility. So reaching financial independence and then choosing to continue to work, that's the ultimate. And what's wonderful about that is that if something happens in your life in which you 
can't work, if you get sick or if somebody who you love gets sick and you need to take some time off, you have the flexibility to be able to deal with that. So that's the wonderful thing about FI. It's not about retiring. It's about having margin of error. It's about having wiggle room. It's about having greater choice. So to your question with regard to how do you save before you have access to your employer's 401k, first of all, of course, there is a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. You can contribute up to a maximum of $6,000 to a traditional IRA, to a Roth IRA, or to a combination of the two of them, so long as the total contributions to a traditional IRA and or a Roth IRA don't exceed a maximum of $6,000. And that's because of your age. For those of you who are listening to this who are age 50 or older, you can contribute up to $7,000. So that is the first thing that I would recommend in terms of getting money into a tax-advantaged retirement account. If you have a high-deductible health plan that is HSA-eligible, health savings account eligible, you can also contribute up to $3,550 to your HSA. That is also a tax-advantaged contribution. And if you want to use that as a supplemental de facto retirement account, then what you could do is instead of using your HSA funds to pay for health expenses, you could pay for your own health expenses out of pocket, save the receipt, just upload it to a Dropbox file or a Google Drive file so that you have that receipt to back you up in case you ever want to reimburse yourself from your HSA for that, but then pay out of pocket for your health costs so that that way the money sits in your tax-advantaged HSA account and all of the growth that comes from that will be tax deferred. And to the extent that some portion of it will be eligible for reimbursement for any qualified medical expenses that you've paid for out of pocket, that portion will be tax exempt. So essentially, by using your HSA as a de facto supplemental retirement account, you take advantage of tax advantaged growth for the duration in which your money is in that account. Now, that's assuming that the money in your HSA is invested rather than sitting in cash. Yeah, and definitely don't touch any of that money that you have as an emergency fund. I love that money sitting there. I think it makes so much sense to leave that money there. And the fact that you have that now, especially in a time of transition, the job sounds great. It sounds awesome. But if you get there and it's not as awesome as you think it is, you're going to be so happy that you didn't uh, lock that money in. So I would leave that alone. You know, I look at things, Paula, on a continuum basis. I always draw in my head kind of a stick figure of me today and then a stick mm -hmm. figure of me at age 70. And she has over 30 years between those two numbers. And so my head immediately goes to there isn't going to be a 30-year period where there's nothing else going on, right? What are some of the more intermediate goals that she may have for money? Which means to me... If she has already been been funding the heck out of retirement strategies where she has money locked up and she has her emergency fund, I may use this year to build my flexible money that you and I have talked about in the mm -hmm. past. Mm -hmm. So open up a brokerage account and save into an index fund or two in that account and give yourself some money that's longish term money 
depending on what your goals may be, but that you don't have to worry about tax loopholes to try to get the money out later. So many people would end up coming into my office and asking, all my money's in tax advantage accounts, Joe, how do I get it out? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer mm-hmm. is don't have all your money in tax advantage accounts, but you can't solve that at 70. But before age 40, you have an opportunity here to begin planting some of those seeds. So I might suggest that, build that part of the garden. So in other words, use this as an opportunity to save for and invest for goals that might be 10 years out or 15 years out, things that she wants to do at the age of 50 or 55. Yeah. And even if nothing comes along for that money, how great will it be when she gets to 70, when she retires and she'll have money that is in a pre-tax position, money that's in a tax-free position in the Roth accounts. But then she also has this money that she can just go to that's incredibly flexible. It's always great to have some money that you can go to that's not your emergency fund, but I don't have to worry about what the tax ramifications are of taking this money out beyond what's the capital gains tax. And the only way, Paul, around the capital gains tax is die and never (laughs) spend the money or spend it or not. I mean, it's eat or don't eat, right? I mean, the the capital gains tax is what it is. So spend it. Well, there's actually one other way around it. And that is, and I don't know what your goals are, but if you have goals of the amount of money that you want to give to charity, if you have philanthropic goals this year, this next year, when you can't contribute to your workplace 401k might be an ideal time to pile money into a taxable brokerage account, which then you can move into a donor advised fund. And when you move that money from a taxable brokerage account into a donor advised fund, you won't have to pay taxes on the capital gains that have accrued from the gains that you've made from that money in the taxable brokerage account. So in other words, if you put $1,000 into a taxable brokerage account and it grows to $1,200 and then you move that $1,200 into the donor advised fund, you're not going to have to pay taxes on that $200. You get to make the full $1,200 contribution to the donor advised fund. And then the charity that receives that money will get that full $1,200. And it's just a, a beautiful way of being able to make charitable contributions while not having to pay the capital gains tax burden that you otherwise would have had to pay if you had withdrawn that money. So what I'm saying is if you have long-term lifetime goals of giving a certain amount of money to charity, if you have those types of philanthropic goals, you could prioritize that in this one-year period. Well, and here's the cool thing about that, Paula, too. Mm-hmm. She can put the money into just a regular brokerage account. Doesn't even need to make that decision today. But that's definitely on the table for later. And it's another great reason to have flexible money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think sometimes we get over obsessed about making sure that all of our money is tax advantaged. If you want to avoid paying a bunch of experts later <laughs> on ways to untangle all of these messes you've made, flexibility is a thing that might not look very sexy now, but certainly comes in really handy later. So thank you, Flo, for asking that question and congratulations on your new job. We'll return to the show in just a moment. Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, 
Save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search, but rather to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. They have more than 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that leverages over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Because you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, you can connect with candidates faster. But beyond just faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches as compared to other job sites. When I've hired people, I've always done so because we're in a time in which we're busy. I hire people for Afford Anything because we have way more work than we can handle and we need more hands on deck. But the thing is, hiring itself is additional workload. So you've got extra workload on top of already too much workload. That's what hiring is. Indeed makes the whole process go a lot smoother. So join more than three and a half million businesses around the world that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our next question comes from Mary. Hi, Paula. My name is Mary, and I am from California. I'm an avid follower of your podcast, and I also follow you on Instagram. I love your articulate, well-thought-out answers to many of the questions submitted to you. If anything about financial and real estate investments as well. Thank you for what you do. My question to you is related to restricted stock units as grant options through an employer. I started working for a high-tech company that's in that's growing fast here in Silicon Valley in California. I started work for them in April 2019. Part of my job offer then was a grant of RSUs in the amount of $80,000. This was equivalent to 315 units of the restricted stocks. At the time, the share price of the company was at about $254 per share. They are to vest over a two-year period starting on my one-year anniversary. I got the first batch of RSUs vested and distributed to my Fidelity account this month. The vesting of the rest of the stocks will continue on a quarterly basis uh, here on until the end of two years. Today, the stock price is about $365 per share compared to $254 per share last April 2019 when I started with the company. So that's amazing. It is about a 44% increase in the stock price. My question to you is, what would you recommend given the volatility of the market now? Should I sell the shares, cash out, and either hold the asset in cash 
pay off some student loan debt or reinvest the amount to uh, an index uh, mutual fund, reinvest the proceeds, that is. Or should I continue to hold the stocks in my individual brokerage account, given that the company is doing so well with the stock price in the market and are expected to grow more in the next few years? So it seems there is much uncertainty in the market and the overall economy. I would appreciate your thoughts and insights. If you were in my shoes, what would you do? Hey, thanks, Mary, for that question. And congratulations, by the way, on working for a company the last year where you get RSUs. And for people that don't know restricted stock units, it's a way, this is a way that a lot of companies, and specifically I found a lot of tech companies, though it doesn't have to be a tech company, reward employees and also try to get you to stay around and not jump ship, right? They'll give you Mm -hmm. stock, but they vest, like Mary said, over a number of years. In her case, she said over two years. And you have these coming, but they're not yours yet. So that's where restricted comes in. Yes, they look pretty, but you can't touch them until X amount of time. And so if you Mm -hmm. stick with us for a while, I've got all this stock uh, that you'll you'll be able to get. And in Mary's case, that stock now that's in her account has also done very well, which is cool. So to that degree, when we think about restricted stock, it is what it is. You don't control the flow of this money. It frankly then just comes down to your goals of what you do with it once it shows up. The best answer to your question then is around your goals. While we know a lot about your employment, I don't know anything about when you would ultimately want to spend this money. What is it going to be a fuel to achieve in the future? Because that's how you determine where to put it later on. Also, when it comes to your company, a lot of people get too wrapped up in the future of the company and where the company's headed. The cool thing about where the company's headed is if you continue to work there, you will get money from that company in the form of a paycheck. Hopefully, if you're great with that company and they do well, it'll be an increasing paycheck, which means more dependence of on your income stream from that company um, and bigger financial rewards. But because of that, we also don't want your portfolio because your income comes from that company is going to be dependent on that employer. We don't want your portfolio to also be 100% dependent on whether that company does well or not. So, Experts will always tell you to limit at the most, if you're going to be prudent, 10% or less, and usually a lot less, of your net worth to that employer's stock. And a lot of people will even say 5% of that money. Now, that's just a rule of thumb. If you told me that you wanted to buy a house in the next couple of years and you're going to need every dollar to do that and we don't care about long-term goals beyond that, well, then let's get rid of all of it because being in a volatile high-tech position where you've already made a lot of money, let's lock it in and make sure that you get the house of your dreams. But if that's not the case and it's long-term and you don't mind the volatility of your company, maybe it is closer to keeping 10% of, of your money there. So just directionally, that's the way I think about it. 
what is the time frame until you need the money? How do we make sure that we don't load up on a single stock, especially the stock where you work, where your income's already dependent on that stream of income? Joe, you said 10% of your net worth. Do you mean 10% of your investable assets? Nice, nice job there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only ask because I have real estate brain. Yes, absolutely. And what that means, by the way, too, is that your things like your home uh, that you live in and you love, don't count that. Don't don't count things like that or your furniture or those cool high priced <laughs> threads that you wear, Mary. Uh, none of that counts. Or, or the equity that you hold in your rental properties. Yes. Or the value of that mullet you're developing like I Ooh. am. Yeah. You, do you think that has some street value? Well, my it has street cred. I don't know about street value. It has goodwill. <laughs> goodwill. Yes, in some circles. <laughs> yeah, I agree. the The big red flag for me here, Mary, when I hear your question, when I hear your situation, the single most important consideration that comes to mind is the amount of your portfolio that is held in one single individual company stock. Regardless of what company that is, it is risky to have too large of a portion of your portfolio held in individual stocks generally, and particularly in the one individual stock in particular. The framework that I would use in determining what you want to do with this stock would start from, hey, what percentage of my overall investable portfolio does this represent? And how can I get this down to a reasonable level? And and Joe, I'm with you. I think 10% sounds way too high. I would have it be less than 5%. So Mary, if you wanted to keep some of that money invested in your company stock, but then use another portion of it for diversification, either by investing it in an index fund or using it to pay off student loans, I think that's a great strategy, regardless of what happens in the future, there's a difference between the result or outcome versus the soundness of the decision-making strategy itself. So let's say that you sell off some of your company stock and move that money into an index fund, and then your company ends up going bonkers crazy and doing super, super well. You could have ultimately had a better result had you held that money in company stock. If that is the case, if that's how the future ends up playing out, does that mean that moving a portion of your company stock into index funds was a bad idea? I would argue no. You know, I would argue that it is still a good idea, even if in a given hypothetical future scenario, it didn't have the best possible outcome, because it is fundamentally a good idea to diversify and make sure that you have a well-balanced portfolio and make sure that you do not have an over-concentration of your portfolio in any one company stock. And, and again, I don't know what percentage of your overall portfolio these stock units represent. So that's really where this answer for you has to start from. Here's something else I like that people think, which is when I first tell people to go to five percent of their portfolio, they'll go, but that's such a low number. Well, it might be today, but the cool thing about this strategy, Paula, is as your net worth increases, the if you like your company, the more uh, stock you'll be able to hell in just sheer dollar value. So as your net worth grows, 
you know, where maybe today you're holding $5,000 of that stock, maybe later on it's going to be 50000 mm-hmm. And if you think about that's 5% of your money overall, that's a, that's a great thing. So it doesn't mean that you can't grow the pie of that uh, one asset, but that you're not gonna, gonna, going to um, uh, wreck your strategy by having too much money in that single company. Mm. You know, I manually track my net worth twice a year on a spreadsheet. It takes hours. I log into every single account and manually transcribe the balance of that account into a spreadsheet. I do that twice a year. I intentionally make it manual so that it's sort of a moving meditation. I can reflect on every account as I'm doing it. One of the things that I do as part of that process is I will calculate the sum of all of my investments So we're not talking about total net worth. You know, we're not talking about rental property equity. I'll calculate the sum of all of my market investments that are held in brokerage accounts. And then I will look at the balance that's in my my Robinhood account, which is the account that I use to hold individual stocks. And I calculate the percentage of what percentage of my overall market investments is held in individual stocks. And so by by tracking that number, by knowing that, and, and of course, it's a changing number, partially depending on how the overall economy is doing, that number can fluctuate wildly because stocks can fluctuate wildly. But by monitoring and tracking that number, I can make sure that the percentage doesn't grow to be unwieldy. I love that. I love the fact that because you're doing it manually, it gives you time to think, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can hear some people saying to their device, Paul, that sounds very inefficient sitting there with an Excel spreadsheet or with a pen and paper when you have so many efficient ways that can be tracked automatically, you know, through an app or spreadsheet or a program. But it's that inefficiency that gives you the time to contemplate where Mm -hmm. your opportunities might be. And that's that's an important thing I think we forget in this age of faster equals better. Exactly, exactly. And I have no objection to using any of those automated tools on a daily or weekly or even a monthly basis. But I think that twice a year, you know, once in the summer and once in the winter, put aside an evening to sit down and go through everything manually and slowly. I think there's a lot of value in that. Not as an instead of, but rather as an in addition to. Yeah. So thank you, Mary, for asking that question. Our final question today comes from another anonymous caller. And Joe, you and I name all of our anonymous callers. So what name should we give this one? Well, here's the deal. When you and I started this, it was because I was telling you a story about how we made up a name when we put our name in at a bakery. And Mm -hmm. uh, I decided that I was going to be Harrison Ford. And it was really cool. (laughs) And I totally forgot that, by the way. And as the guy is bringing around my tuna salad sandwich and he's going order for Harrison, Harrison. I I forgot I was doing it, but so Cheryl and I always had this rule that you and I have adopted that, uh, if we don't have a name, it's the person who's on the last movie or TV show that we saw. So Mm -hmm. I'm watching a great series right now called broad church, fantastic series on Netflix. Now I highly recommend it. Olivia Coleman's the lead. So let's call her Olivia. Perfect. Well, in that case, our final question for today comes from Olivia. Hi, Paula. Love the show and the in-depth insights you've provided on various financial topics. 
hoping you can help clarify some details or nuances around a critical item of the early retiree strategy, the Roth conversion ladder. In looking into this more, I came across the pro rata rule, but I'm unclear on if that's applicable to the Roth conversion ladder strategy. It seems like it's been mostly discussed in terms of a backdoor Roth conversion, but I'm hoping you have some insight into if this is something to watch out for or keep in mind when doing a Roth conversion ladder as well. AKA, should someone consider this Roth conversion ladder strategy? Also, do some basic preparations such as consolidating all their planned conversion funds into a 401k or 403b from a rollover traditional IRA account before starting this process? Or is that irrelevant, but one should keep a certain sequence of conversions in mind, such as converting assets from a rollover traditional IRA to a Roth IRA first, before rolling over all the funds from a 401k into a traditional IRA before the conversion process? Or is this all just overcomplicating a simple strategy? Appreciate any thoughts or inputs you have. Thanks again for all you do and keep up the great work. Olivia, that's a fantastic question. Now, first, for the sake of everybody who's listening, let me set up some background so that the people who are listening understand the context of this question. If you plan on retiring early and you want to be able to take money out of your retirement accounts so that you can live on that money during your early retirement, one popular strategy is what's called the Roth conversion ladder. This is how it works. While you're working, you contribute money to pre-tax retirement accounts, such as your 401k, your 403b, maybe your workplace offers a simple IRA. So you contribute this money into pre-tax retirement accounts during your career. Then at the point that you decide is appropriate, and there's some factors that go into determining when that decision is made, but at the appropriate point, you then transfer your employer's retirement assets into a traditional IRA. And from that point forward, you start converting the assets that are in a traditional IRA into a Roth IRA. Now, you'll pay tax on the conversion, so you want to plan when you make those conversions wisely in order to minimize the tax hit from the trad IRA to Roth IRA conversion. Now, once that money has been converted from a trad to a Roth IRA, you then have to wait for five years before you're allowed to touch the converted money. But after five years, you can then withdraw the conversion tax-free and penalty-free. And so this is a process that people use in order to be able to access some of their pre-tax retirement contributions during their early retirement. And of course, it requires quite a bit of planning because, as I said, there's a five-year gap in between when you make this conversion and when you are allowed to withdraw this conversion. Now, to your question, your question is about the pro rata rule, and that refers to a rule by the IRS that states that when you are converting money from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, you cannot necessarily convert the full balance of it. You have to convert a proportionate balance based on your total IRA assets. As you said in your question, this rule typically comes up in conversations when people are asking about the specifics of how to make a backdoor Roth conversion, which we talked about at the beginning of this episode when we were answering a question from Marissa. And I'm sure you're not going to like this answer. The unfortunate for you reality is that the prorater rule applies to all traditional IRA funds, including funds that were made as a deductible traditional IRA contribution in a year in which you were eligible to make traditional IRA contributions, 
and also to funds that were made as 401k contributions that later got rolled over into a traditional IRA. So in other words, the pro rata rule is not specific only to funds that get put into a non-deductible traditional IRA for the purpose of then being converted into a backdoor Roth. It also applies to other IRA funds as well. And so the pro rata rule is something that you absolutely need to calculate as you are making this conversion. In the show notes, which will be available at affordanything.com slash episode 260, we will place links to a handful of articles about the pro rata rule. But as you are executing this conversion, because the pro rata rule is rather complicated to calculate, and because the calculation is based on the funds in your account at the end of the year, not at the time in conversion, you will absolutely want a tax professional on your side. So get a CPA, talk to that CPA about the pro rata rule, talk to that CPA about the fact that you want to execute this Roth conversion ladder strategy, and make sure that you are working closely with a CPA or another licensed tax professional to guide you through this, because you need to make sure that the calculation is correct. Yeah, that was going to be, Paula, my only point is that now we're in uh, pretty needy water and you don't want to mess this up. So this is where I would have a professional in your corner to verify that everything that you're doing is correct. To the second half of her question, where she asked, do I need to do any basic preparations? Well, I mean, first of all, the money needs to be in an IRA account. So in, in order to roll over money from an IRA into a Roth IRA, that money has to be in an IRA account. So if it's currently in a 401k or a 403b, it will need to be rolled into an IRA in order to then be rolled from that IRA into a Roth IRA. So that is a basic level of preparation that needs to happen. In terms of the sequence of conversions, no, that really doesn't matter. The only thing, and this is not preparation, but Paula, the only thing that I think is if you have some investments that are in the right spot and you like where they're at and you have others that are not in the right spot and you're looking at one IRA to move first versus another one, I would always start your process with the stuff that needs to be moved anyway. And I see people just kind of go through this haphazardly, but I think that if you've got some assets that clearly are in the wrong place while you're moving them to the right place, let's also use the right tax strategy at the same time. So what you're saying is if you want to revise your asset allocation or rebalance your portfolio, you may as well make those corrections in tandem with making this conversion. Yeah, start there. So it, it feels much more like a logical process instead of just arbitrarily picking this is the money I'm going to start with. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes back to basic asset allocation management. You know, you always want to be checking your current asset allocation, making sure that that looks good and you know, making any adjustments in your portfolio that you need in order to keep that allocation on the right track. Weed your garden. Exactly. It's that time of year to pull weeds. I was pulling weeds earlier today. Literally? Literally. There's something cathartic about that. There's something that just feels good. Yeah. About taking the weeds out of the garden. Yeah. And when I need time to think, that's the first thing that I do. Even though we're selling this house, that's the first thing I do. Oh, nice. Go pull some weeds. So, Joe, we've done it. Already? We've done it. We've answered the questions for today's episode. Another great batch of questions, weren't they? Absolutely. And people doing such cool stuff. 
moving, getting better jobs, cleaning up their asset allocation, deciding to uh, give themselves some flexibility, starting a job with a company that pays you RSUs or a year into it, restricted mm-hmm. stock units. How often do we get to talk about restricted stock units and the pro rata rule, uh, <laughs> Roth conversion ladder, and we get to talk about what to do with your excess money from your new job? I mean, pretty, pretty cool. We are officially nerds. It is fantastic. Is it, is it cool that we like that? I'd say so. <laughs> it's us street cred with our kinds of people, right? So, Joe, where can people find you if they would like to hear more of you? Well, you can hear us at uh, the Stacky Benjamin Show, which is a little like uh, mixing a late night talk show with finance. So if you like your finance a little fun and relaxed and three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, come join us there. We just joined Westwood One, which is the second biggest uh, second biggest radio network. We're part of their podcast build out. You won't hear us on the radio. Although I have heard people say that they've heard advertisements for Stacky Benjamins on the radio lately. That's super cool. That part's cool, except the part, well, it is kind of cool to have a guy that sounds like he's hot 95.5 talking about my show. (laughs) He sounds like this. And if you like financial discussions that might be a little funny, listen to Stacky Benjamins on Westwood One. (laughs) That's a great, great radio ad voice. It's so bad. I'm like, really? Really? That's us? Really? Okay. Yeah. But anyway, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Stacky Benjamins. And on most Fridays, you will find the one and only Paula Pant hanging Mm -hmm. out with us. That is absolutely true. She currently is holding back on our year-long trivia contest so she can make a brilliant run at the end of the year (laughs) and win the whole thing. I'm the underdog in that contest. (laughs) You Not last year, but this year you truly are. Yeah. Well, it's not even the midpoint of the year yet, so I've got time. You've got game. We know you've got game. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks for spending this time with us, Joe. Thanks a ton again, Paula. That's our show for today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend or a family member. That's the single most effective way to spread the message of financial literacy and financial independence. You can send your friends or family a link to the show at affordanything.com slash episode 260. That's affordanything.com slash episode 260. If you would like to subscribe to the show notes so that you get notes and updates and synopses of our episodes, you can do so at affordanything.com slash show notes. Thank you to the sponsors of today's episode, Gusto, Radius Bank, Beta Brand, and Policy Genius. For a complete list of all of our sponsors, plus the deals, the discounts, the promo codes that they offer, you can find all of that at affordanything.com slash sponsors. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast spreading the message of aligning your money, your time, your energy, and your attention with that which you prioritize the most. Thanks for being part of this community, and I will catch you in the next episode.